Hey everyone, welcome to the Intelligent Conversations podcast where we believe everyone has a form of intelligence that resides within them. Our goal is to encourage these types of conversations for our audience to listen to. Without further ado, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and this is your host, Josh Baker with the Intelligent Conversations podcast. Today I have Alan on. He's a beer guide, stay-at-home dad, and he loves his beer. He also has a background in the history of beer, and I'm literally looking forward to what he has to say for us today. I'm really excited for what he has. So, Alan, I, I don't drink, first off, and all I know about the origin of beer is from The Simpsons, and they said that it originated from cavemen. So, I'm probably wrong, but when exactly did beer become to be, and where, where, is it, where did it originate? Well, Josh, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate this. Um, so history of beer is is kind of fun. Uh, you have you have the very general, general, general one of, you know, um, you know, nomadic tribesmen, you know, that were starting to make bread or use grain in some way. Uh, the fun story is someone left something in a pot. It got rained on and then someone decided to drink it and then went, oh, this is cool. You know, um, that is, if you want the most basic history of beer, that is pretty much what you've got. Um, and I'll, I'll let the, your audience know the a lot of what I'm referencing from is from the Beer Bible. Uh, great, great book if you want to check it out. Same thing with this other book called Tasting Beer by Randy Mosier. Just so your audience knows, I'm not just trying to like, you know, Wikipedia my way through this thing. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's always a good thing to have. Yeah. Um, but I mean, generally you have, you know, around 10,000, 8,000 years, you have the Sumerians, the nomadic people, they start off fermenting a beverage that it's kind of called like a gruel beer. Uh, there's no, you know, we can only take sense of what we have from, you know, the arc, from the, from what archeology span tells us, but generally what they think happened is that there was, you know, uh, people that were making some type of, of bread uh, using wheat and other grains. Um, someone decided to use water to soften whatever mixture was going on. Um, and then at some point in time, somebody had water on there too long and drank it and was like, oh, this doesn't taste horrible. Now, at the t- that time, um, there probably wasn't what we would call a beer. It was more like a gruel beer. It probably would have been very viscous, very thick, very low ABV, probably in the one to 2% range max because it was using the wild yeast. It was probably very tart or um, maybe it, it probably to us would not have tasted very well. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know what uh, it tastes like, but I've heard from other people that it's something that tastes uh, very, very sweet and very like, don't we use uh, different types of uh, grains like oats in one and then there's wheat in another and I think vodka's like potatoes, right? Uh, can you uh, shed some light on that? <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, so generally, what you have now in modern beer is this. I'll, I'll take you through the process. It's you have grains, uh, all different types. Generally, it's a uh, it's it's a it is a, a type of wheat. You have two row or six row, meaning how many like branches you have of the stout of the stock. Uh, you take that, you let it, uh, we call it malt, where you have it germinate just a little tiny bit, and that releases a lot of sugars and enzymes inside of the grain. 
You take that grain, you then kiln it to stop all that activity. So it, each little bit of grain has like a little bit of sugar and enzymes that helps out with all the further processes. You take that grain, you mash it up, you grind it up into little smaller bits. You put it in a big pot of water, hot water. Brewers call that hot liquor. And you make a big tea out of it. All right. Now, the how you make that tea will help determine how the beer turns out. So if you make this tea at a lower temperature, you're going to get a lot of bigger, um, uh, these, these very, uh, sorry, if you, if you ferment, if you brew that tea at uh, like a higher temperature, you get these bigger, bigger sugars that end up having a sweeter, more alcoholic, we'll say beer. If you brew this, if you, uh, I'm trying to make sure I don't go into crazy fun brewing words, but if you brew this tea at like a lower temperature, you get more refined sugars and you get a, a quote, more complex beer. Then you take that, what we now call malt, you take that malt and you boil it and you add hops, uh, which is a bittering flour, and that counteracts the sweetness of the malt. You do that for anywhere between 60 to 90 minutes plus. Um, this is also when people like to add some fun things, like I like to add, um, or around this time is when you'll see people add maybe some extras. Some people like to add chocolate, uh, coffee, things like that. And then you do to the fermentation process where you take this now malt, you put it into a bigger bucket, you add yeast, you cool it down, you add yeast. And then in two weeks to three months to a year, depending on the beer that you're making, uh, you now have beer. You take that, you carbonate it, and you have beer. Okay, so now I, I like that you uh, uh, talked me through the process because I wasn't too aware of how that happened. So, I mean, uh, I, something I remember from the history books that when I was in school, because I just graduated uh, recently, uh, something that I remember is they talked about something called prohibition. Uh, it was in the 1920s, I believe. Uh, did they use that process then? Like, but people would do it in like their basement and like behind the scenes just so then the government wouldn't get involved or what kind of happened there? So, so, okay. So what you're talking about, um, so let me, let me backtrack a little bit. So this process um, was developed. I mean, what we would call the modern brewing process was probably developed um, around, we're talking like 800 BCE, you know, what we, you know, Egypt had full working breweries using this general process around 800 BCE. So this process has been going on for a very, very long time. You know, um, the process of making beer doesn't really change all too much. The, you could tweak parts of it to give you a different tasting beer, but the process of making beer doesn't change all too much. Um, what you're uh, kind of alluding to prohibition, um, let me go back to my notes real quick. So that was, um, prohibition was initiated. The, the, the 18th amendment was initiated in 1917. And that was to say, Hey, guess what? No alcohol, pretty much the simplified version, no alcohol in the U S to be produced beyond what could be used for medicinal or religious purposes. Okay. Um, and people would make their own beer using what they had. You had people, you had companies like Budweiser, Miller's Coors, that um, you could find these packets where they have dried malt. So remember what I was talking to you about, the grain being kilned and all that. So you can buy that as a dry powder and they would sell dried malt because you could use it in different 
other beverages, but um, like, I don't know if you've ever had like a chocolate malt, um, like it's a, it's a milkshake. Yeah. And so they would sell that malt and they would put instructions on it of like, do not put this in hot water and add hops and then cool and add yeast or you will make beer. Um, <laughs> which is, is kind of like some, <laughs> so they have the instructions. Yeah. It, it's kind of like right now, uh, we'll, we'll take it to like the marijuana prohibition going on right now is someone selling, uh, cannabis seeds and saying, do not, you know, plant this in this type of soil for this amount of time and then dry and then smoke it. That is illegal to do with these seeds. It, it's, it's comparable to that. So that came about because there was in the early 1800s, um, the U.S. booming, surging. You know, we have after the revolution, we are now a formed country. We are we are on our way up. Um, I mean, we're still a small country at the time, but we are we are we're we're going. Um, you have at that time a a large portion of people of I'm going to say people. I'm going to cut that back and say men that were spending a lot of their money on booze. Um, I you know from the the PBS Prohibition documentary. You know, people were spending, men were spending the same amount of money on booze as the entire U.S. was making in a year. What the? <laughs> That's not. Uh... Yeah. So, so, so it was very profitable, but um, especially at that time with the, the so few rights that women had, men could were pretty much getting home, you know, home, going home drunk doing whatever they wanted to their wives without any repercussions. And women were, you know, kind of like, hey, we're kind of tired of this. So that started off what was called the temperance movement of, hey, let's not drink as much or let's just stop drinking. Um, and that had its roots in like a, a good cause, but it really, and this is gonna, this is gonna, this is where it's, it's where you kind of see like politics influence so much. Um, it really, then turned after the civil war because the, the temperance movement started in the early 1800s you yeah. have the civil war you know temperance movement slows down then picks back up again um you then have uh, a lot of churches and a, what we would probably call the moral majority at that point in time going hey we don't want any beer any alcohol at all and that's where you have the teetotalers and that's not because of the drink tea but that's tea as in totalitarian like no alcohol whatsoever. And this runs into also, um, it becomes then a moral act, an American act where, you know, being American means not drinking at all. And it's to try to also quail down, you know, um, immigrant cultures because the, you know, at that time you have so many people that, uh, or some of the, uh, the teetotalers were in the, uh, I hate to put it this way, but best of worst words, the white evangelical movement at the time. And you have then the other Protestant denominations like the Lutherans that, uh, the you know, you have also the Catholics that are very much minority, majority uh, uh, denominations that are like, hey, no, we're, we're, we're cool with it. Yeah. Um, and so you have this real push to make this an American movement. And that's kind of what happens. And the 18th Amendment gets signed and then doesn't get repealed until the 21st Amendment in 1933. So I, I'm, I'm going to kind of, because I know this was during the 20s, if I'm, I'm getting this right. 
like 19 you said 1917 right so you have yeah 1917 first amendment i mean the the 18th amendment gets started and then it doesn't get repealed until 1933 okay so you have you know 15 years yeah okay so what kind of how did uh the american like public opinion sway during that time i know it was called the roaring 20s but uh, what what kind of swayed, you know, like you said, the churches and public opinion to repeal that amendment? So people didn't stop drinking, you know, <laughs> that didn't happen at all. Um, it just all went underground. Uh, this is when you have, you know, the Roaring Twenties and you have the classic martinis and things like that. The, 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 the cock, rise of the cocktails were all done behind closed doors, at least in America, you know, Um so by pushing alcohol and alcohol drinking culture underground, for one, it made it cool. It wasn't, quote, cool before prohibition. It was just something that you did, you know. Um, there were, especially in, uh, in German and Irish communities, you had beer halls and places where you took the family after church on Sunday to have a meal and a drink. Whereas now it becomes an underground thing. It becomes... The cool thing you have as well, the birth of jazz that comes around or the popularity of jazz, because now you have people in a club. Let's get some music. And uh, jazz was also seen as kind of this, you know, evil thing. Um, so it doesn't change that people are drinking. It just brings it all underground. Uh, you have, you know, that's when you have what's called bathtub gin that comes around. You know, people literally distilling drinks in their home to then sell or consume later. Yeah, that that I, that makes sense in uh, uh, what kind of happened there. I mean, obviously no one is going to stop once you take it away, but I'm actually kind of interested in the fact that like people like thought of this cool because I mean, it's obviously still relevant today. Why do you think the government even, I mean, still uh, prohibited it even though they, did they not know the effects that like people were going to shift it to underground or did they just think it was just going to stop altogether? Well, the hope was that we would become a dry country, you know, that by eliminating it, that then, you know, give it a generation or two, and then you would have a dry country, this, this country that does not want alcohol anymore. Again, that didn't happen. What really caused the, uh, what really caused the, put the nail in the coffin for prohibition was, uh, the Great Depression, um, you know, uh, beer, wine, drinks can be taxed, and we tend to drink a lot of, of beer, wine, and liquor. So you have a whole source of income that the government goes, yeah, let's bring this back. Um, at which point in time, you know, we have a lot more taxes that can be taxed on those things. Uh, but, you know, also at that point in time, you have beer and you have alcohol that's being controlled by outside sources you have the mob you have you know rum runners moonshiners things like people like that that are doing this all illegally and the government's looking around like they're buying it we might as well tax it so at that point in time 1933 21st amendment prohibition is repealed literally it, it was like it wasn't that like people went oh great i can't wait for you know, so that the, I can't wait to like go to the bar and buy a beer, you know, when the bars open up bars that had survived opened up and just put the liquor from behind the counter on top. 
Okay, so that that thank you for clearing that up. So I mean, you mentioned the Great Depression, and I kind of want to go into some of the social aspects that come with mm-hmm. drinking alcohol. I know that some people go just for uh you know just for the social interaction, some of that. But I mean, especially Great Depression era, a lot of people go because mentally they're just not in a good place. Uh, what do you think? Uh, kind of, uh, what what am I looking for here? It's uh. What type of drinkers do you typically see uh, at a bar? <laughs> oh, man, I love this question. I love it. That's such a great question. Um, you know, I feel like, okay, if you were talking about 1933, uh, you know, after, you know, right after Prohibition, most bars are going to be men, 99.9% men. Um, drinking was not seen as something a lady should do, especially in public. Um, the women that were drinking at the time, uh, they were rebels at amen to them. Uh, like they were, they were breaking the mold. Um, and this goes into kind of the, the whole idea of, of marketing with beer and alcohol. Uh, you know, you have Budweiser that is the first mass marketing that does the first real true mass marketing campaign to, make beer cool and uh, appealing towards the masses. Not that it wasn't done so already, but it was seen as this everyday drink, and now they wanted to make it the everyday man's drink, at which point um, it becomes a, a – it starts off the, the big run of the mass marketing, and, and uh, you have the start of the big three, Miller Coors, and Budweiser fighting for sales. And I say that because I know you talked about beer drinkers, you know, who's drinking at a bar. Those companies start to shift how bar culture looks because it goes from this underground after prohibition to now above ground. Everybody is back to being in the bar, men at least, but there's a homogenization of what is being served. So then you have a homogenization of who is at the bar. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So instead of a bar pre-prohibition having a, a large variety of styles of beers, of styles of drinks, of styles of, of things for people to have, at which point you have you know all different types of people coming in to enjoy said drinks, when you have this campaign to push the same type of drinks, the same type of structure in a bar – you then homogenize what people want and what people are going to to the bar. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, that kind of brings something into my uh, mind. So I personally, just because uh, I've seen people that uh, get like, they struggle with alcoholism and things like that. I'm just like, uh-huh. I'm just not going to do that in my life, right? Cool. So I kind of want to hear the other side of it. Uh, why, why would people want to drink? Okay, so you ask a really great question there, and let me first preface it with this. Um, I I love it more when people say, you know what, I've decided not to drink, or I've had, I've, I've dipped my toe in the devil's water, the devil's pool, and you know what, it's not my jam. I love hearing people say that because they've made a decision that has said, this is not something I want to pursue in my life. And that's amen. Um, I would rather have someone know that this is something that I should not be focusing on than have someone 
jumping in and then finding out, wow, I went into this too hard. You know what I mean? Um, for myself, I didn't start to drink really until I was out of college. It's not that, you know, I, you know, even at 21, when I turned 21, I went out to BJ's, had a flight and was like, all right, cool. Um, it wasn't until I, um, started to play at a wine bar. I was a house musician at a wine bar and the guy was like, Hey, if you, you know, free beer, if you play, I was like, great. And that's when I started to figure out like, Hey, there's other types of beers and start to really experiment and see what was out there. Um, I see fermented, distilled, brewed beverages as little pieces of art. Um, in the same way that you can look at a painting and there's a story there, I see that in my, my glass of beer, wine, you know, spirit, cocktail, whatever. Because each of those things has such a huge, long history. And the more that you learn about them, the more you can appreciate kind of what is going on in the glass. So I... I don't encourage people to get wasted. I don't encourage people to binge. I don't encourage people to, uh, you know, um, you know, I, I hate the idea of, of, you know, drinking to your limit or like, like, you know, oh, they just can't hold their liquor. Like, I don't like that idea because that encourages a find out where you can get to. And if you're drinking, you will find that out no matter what. Like you will have times that you had too much. Um, personally, me, the other, you know, a couple nights ago, um, I went out, uh, you know, I have kids. I don't get to go out as much. <laughs> and my wife was like, look, my mother-in-law, you know, my mom and I are going to watch Cinderella. The kids are asleep. Go out and have fun. And I went out and had fun. And I went out and had one drink too many. I came home and my wife was like, don't do that again. I'm like, you're right. I'm not going to do that again. Um and that's something I just – I don't like being drunk. I don't like that feeling. I don't like – I can't afford hangovers anymore. Um, so I would say if you're going to drink, if you want to explore, go with someone that um, is going to be a good guide and not someone that is like, oh, man, let's get you wasted because that's – I think that's the worst way to enjoy alcohol. Yeah, I, I actually like that you brought that up. I mean it's interesting that you brought that perspective in. I think a lot of people need to hear that. I mean especially – uh, I'm heading into like uh, a lot of people my age are college age students and they are definitely participating in the binge drinking and all that stuff. And I, I think you offered uh, really good advice there that uh, I think my audience can enjoy. And it kind of leads me to something. What kind of background did you come to? I mean, you said you really understand the history of beer and alcohol. What kind of background do you have to like that got you to where you are now? So uh, let me take it back to to my my own upbringing. Um, I didn't see beer or anything like or alcohol or things like that as something to want to pursue early on because I had a uncle that loved to get drunk and watch football, and I and I saw him and I was like I don't want to be that, you know. Um, and even in college, I went to Pepperdine University. You know, you can see on the hat right there, and it's a Christian college, it's a dry college. Not to say that drinking didn't happen there at all, but um, you know, I had friends that were one of two ways, either get smashed or didn't drink at all. So I had a, an apprehensive mindset, we'll say to alcohol overall. Um, again, once I started to perform at the swine bar and start to pursue and see beer as something more than what I had grown up with it, I started to go, well, let's see what else is 
is is is behind you know behind the bar. Um, I had a church elder uh, that got me into home brewing, and then that really took me down the rabbit hole. Um, I got what is called my uh, level one or my certified beer server for the Cicerone program. So I don't know if you know what like a wine sommelier is. I I don't know what that is. So one of these days you're going to go to a fancy schmancy restaurant and you're someone will order a bottle of wine whether you choose to participate or not. And you will, this guy will, guy or woman will come out and, you know, advise them on the wine, um, serve the wine and all this other fun stuff. Um, there's that for beer is called the Cicerone. Uh, Cicerone means guide in Latin. And so uh, this is a program that you, that tests you on your beer knowledge um, in all aspects of it. So I got my level one certified beer server. Now granted, it's an online test. Um, they've made it much harder since I took it <laughs> years and years and years ago. But I wanted to learn about beer. I wanted to not just go, wow, that tastes good, but why does that taste good or why does it taste that way? Um, what's the history behind this? Um, it was my, my, my springboard into wanting to dive into beer. Uh, since then, I've served at a couple of different bars. Um, I have been – I took a quick tour as a – tap room manager. Um, I've got my podcast called I Know Nothing About Beer. And I, I'm continually, you know, I, I'm, I'm always seeking to deepen my knowledge of, of beer because it's just something, it's one of those things I just get. Um, I just, it just clicks with me and I love to figure out more what's behind it. Yeah, that, I, that makes uh, sense. I mean, we all have those things uh, that just click. For me, it's uh, like business. Like for some reasons that just like, it clicks in my brain. And I think we all need to have those things that it just clicks in our brain because I mean, this is kind of the premise of this show that I host. I want to show that everyone has something intelligent to say and everyone's specialized essentially in one specific field. And uh, I want them to share it with that, even like unique backgrounds. And uh, I like that uh, you said that that was that really, really interesting background. I, I like that. So could you uh, maybe Tell me a little bit more about like the certification process. It's called a, I don't know if I'm pronounced, it's Cicerone. I don't know if I got that right. Cis, so Cis, Cicerone. Cicerone. Think of like Cis and sister, Cis and sister, sir, like hello, sir, Rome. Okay, so Cicerone. Cicerone. There you go. Okay, gotcha. There we go, Cicerone. Don't have to put the accent to it. You're all good, boss. <laughs> the Cicerone program. Now, sommelier, you want you want to sound fancy, say sommelier. If you want to, you know, sound like you know, have someone turn their head up to you who's a real wine. So, can I get the sommelier over here? You know, uh, no, the Cicerone program developed by Ray Davis. Um, he wanted a program that could stand up to the sommelier program. Um, and to show people that beer wasn't just the, you know, the Coors and the, the Millers of the world, that there is a, a much deeper and richer history than what's presented by the mass marketing of the, the what I call the big three, you know, or what is called the big three, I should say, uh, you know, the Miller Coors and, and Budweiser's of the world. Um, you know, uh, beer is a very ancient drink, just like wine is. It has its own history. It has affected the world. Uh, whether you know it or not, um, you know, marketing in the U.S. has been affected by Budweiser. It's just that that is what has happened. And so he wanted to develop a program that would test people on their skills 
and to make something that would be recognized in the world of beer and hopefully much later on in the world overall. So you have your certified beer server, you have your certified Cicerone, you have your um, advanced Cicerone and you have your master Cicerone. And each level has a different level of, of testing. So the certified beer server is an online test. Then you have certified Cicerone, which is um, you have to do a, uh, I believe it's a two-page written essay. Uh, I, I think it's uh, between 100 to 150 uh, fill-in-the-blank multiple choice. Then you have uh, a serving component where you're given a beer and you're supposed to serve it correctly. Then you have a, um, a component that is about the kegging uh, production side of, of beer. And then you have the blind taste. So you have three beers. You have to get the style, uh, ABV, SRM, IBU, um, correctly. I think 85 or 90% correctly, blind. So you're given the beer and they say, okay, uh, tell me what it is. And then you smell it, taste it, observe it, and then go, okay, this is an oatmeal stout. Uh, it should range. This one ranges between 5.2 and 5.6% ABV. The color of the SRM looks like about a 60. Um, and then you give a little history about the oatmeal stout and what it is. Yeah. So that is the certified beer server, and then it gets harder from there. Okay, gotcha. So it's it's just kind of like a progression of uh, like any type of job. You just progress towards uh, a higher certification. So what is there like specific – so what would the advanced uh, Cicerone uh, do? The, so, so certified beer servers is good if you want to like um, – if, if you want to get ahead – in uh or a better foot in the door in serving beer you know i would highly suggest getting your certified beer server because then that shows a place that especially is focused on beer that you're not just someone that says oh i really like beer like no no i took a test to show i really like beer um the certified cicerone and the advanced cicerone those are levels that show you want to be in the beer industry and you're kind of committed to that. So if you're a sales rep, I would definitely – a sales rep meaning someone that represents a brewery and sells the beer of a brewery or uh, is a, works in distributor sense. Like you're selling beer to people that will sell beer. Um, those are great to have because then it shows that you furthered your education more. Um, you know, the advanced – man, the advanced Cicerones, those are the people that are making – the um how do i put this that are that are the leaders in beer so right now i believe there's only about 13 cicerones in the world uh master cicerones in the world um these are the people that get hired by budweiser to do all the trainings to think of, to write the trainings for the people that will be selling the beer you know uh these are the people that are doing the harder academic work around beer because you have to know so much about the history of beer to become like a master Cicerone. Yeah. Okay. So thank you uh, for uh, giving my audience details on that and how to do that. So, I mean, I think we're going to kind of just begin to wrap up here. So I kind of want, I want my audience to, uh, this is kind of the last question that I'm going to ask. Uh, what do you want your audience to remember about you? Like, what do you want the audience to remember about you? 
Man, if if the audience came away with the fact with with something that said, "Man, I'd love to have a beer with that guy," I would be cool with that. That would be great. <laughs> um, that's really what I would love. Um, uh, you know, I I love to to enjoy a pint. I love to in, in experience it. I love that beer is such a conversation starter, and I've had some of my favorite conversations over a beer. Um, so. To me, um, I, I would really hope that they would take away that beer is, is much bigger than maybe what gets put on TV about what beer should be. And that there's a very rich, storied, um, and uh, interesting history in beer itself. Okay, sweet. So thank you for coming on. I Is there any way that like if anyone wants to contact you or maybe have that beer with you, uh, is there any way that you would like them to reach out to you? Absolutely. So I have uh, a couple different channels. Uh, you could find me on Instagram, Al the Brewer, A L T H E B R E W E R. Um, I've had that Instagram handle for a very long time. Uh, I'm most active there, but you can find that on Instagram, Twitter, and and Facebook. Um, I also have I'm a stay at home dad as well. So I have a YouTube channel about being a stay at home dad. It's called Dad Domesticus. Uh, you could just go, you know, youtube.com slash dad domesticus and find me there. I've got a lot of really stupid, stupid songs about what it means to be a father and kind of like what it means to be a stay at home dad. Um, you could also email me althebrewer at gmail.com, daddomesticus at gmail.com. Yeah. And then, of course, my podcast, I Know Nothing About Beer as well. Uh, that's going to be rounding its fifth season, starting its fifth season up, hopefully in the fall. I've, I've done four seasons and. It has, uh, it's a bit. And so, um, yeah, so to do the fifth season coming up, I'm excited about it. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. I always love hearing, I mean, congratulations on the fifth season. I mean, I'm just getting started here. But uh, it's, it's always good to see someone that has done it and they're just going out there and being successful. I, I love that. So thank you for coming on. It's It's been a pleasure to have you on, man. Hey, Josh, thank you so much for having me on, man. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. Yeah, no, no problem. So everyone that is Alan, he is, uh, as you can tell, a very intelligent man. He has a lot to offer on the table. Uh, thank you uh, for tuning into this episode. Be sure to check out next week's episode. Uh, we have a great guest lined up then. Uh, tune into next week and let's get after it. Hey everyone, if you liked this episode and would like to hear more, be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button. We release a new episode every Wednesday for you guys to listen to. Thank you guys so much for the support that you give. We could not have done this without you guys. If you would like to be a potential guest on the show, check out intelligentconvos.com and there should be a form there for you guys to fill out. Thank you guys again and let's get after it.